Good morning, Evie Free. How are you guys? Any, uh, any USC fans in the house? It's a good day for USC football. Any UCLA fans in the house? That, that's been consistent over all three services. There are far more UCLA fans than there are USC fans. I was actually excited about LA getting a professional football team. Uh, but one gentleman informed me, we don't need a pro team, we have UCLA. Uh, I said, touche, sir, touche. Well, my name is Austin Helm. I'm one of the teaching and venue pastors here. If this is your first time to EV Free, we just want to say that we're, we're a, a community of people that are passionate about following Jesus as disciples, connecting as family, and ultimately going as missionaries. And we think the life of discipleship is the best possible life that a person could live. It doesn't make life easier or filled with roses, but it does come with promises. Promises that in our deepest times of need, there's a place we can run to. In our deepest times of trial, there's a strength we can tap into. In a place of deep tribulation, we have an advocate. And in all three of those scenarios, that advocate, that helper, and that strength is Jesus. So whether this is your first time to EB Free or you've been coming for 50 years This morning, you're in the right place. You're with the right people and you're seeking after the right person, which is Jesus. Has anybody in here ever dealt with a guilty conscience? Anybody in the house? I know that I have. Uh, It began early. Uh, For a lot of you, it might have as well. And and a guilty conscience can come from a variety of things. I remember being young and the cookie jar is on the counter and I'm not supposed to have a cookie because I haven't eaten dinner yet. And uh, my mom specifically tells me don't do it when she's not looking. I stick my hand in that cookie jar. I take a cookie. And I develop a guilty conscience for doing what my mom asked me not to. In a similar scenario, when you were a kid, your parents might have left you at home. And uh, when they leave you at home, you and your siblings are goofing around and you break something. And when your parents come home, you, you quickly blame your siblings, not yourself. And you develop a guilty conscience when they're grounded and you aren't, right? Uh, these are the beginnings of it. Uh, when you move into high school and college, some of you may have gotten help, a.k.a. cheated, on a homework or test. Um, and when you do and you turn it in, you may find yourself developing a guilty conscience becomes, because of it. For some of you with your first boyfriend or girlfriend, you're out a little bit too late with no supervision. You go a little bit too far, and as a result, you begin to develop a guilty conscience. But the older we get, the higher the stakes get. For some of you, you're in a marriage or you just got out of a marriage and the marriage fell apart and because of the brokenness of that, you've developed a guilty conscience for not being able to keep that marriage together. For some of you, you're in a marriage where there's been unfaithfulness or infidelity and you carry that guilty conscience with you continually in the marriage. You see, a guilty conscience, it will keep us up at night. It will rob us of sleep. It will put us in a place in which we begin to distance ourselves from friends and family because of embarrassment. You see, a guilty conscience can be devastating to us as people. But a guilty conscience, it's not a a 21st century development. It's not even a post-enlightenment development. You see, humanity has been dealing with a guilty conscience since since the beginning of creation. And being a part of God's people has not made God's people immune to this idea and this reality of a guilty conscience. So in the Old Testament, you find the people of God uh, setting up forms and patterns to deal 
with their guilty conscience. They would, they would build tabernacles and temples and they would bring sacrifices into the presence of God and lift up these sacrifices to make atonement for their brokenness and ultimately to cleanse their consciousness. This idea of needing a clean conscience wasn't vacant from the people that the author of Hebrews wrote to. See, we're about to read this verse in the book of Hebrews. And the author, throughout the entire book of Hebrews, is constantly making a statement that Jesus is better. You see, this letter is written to house churches in Asia Minor or in Rome. uh, But scholars would say across the board that these house churches are Jewish in nature. They know the scriptures and, and they probably at one point were a part of one of four divisions of Judaism. A part of the Pharisees the Sadducees, the Zealots, or the Essenes. And and all four of these groups knew that they needed a clean conscience. All four of them affirmed the temple and sacrifices, but they all had a slightly different take on it. And they were all waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises when this sacrificial system would come to an end. They just didn't know who it would be, when it would be, or where it would be, but they had a few ideas. In about the first century, however, a new division of Judaism emerges. The book of Acts calls it the way. Later it will be called Christianity. And it's a group of Jewish people who have seen the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And they say, that's him. That's the one that we've been waiting for. That is the one who will make our conscience clean and free us from this guilt. And and so this group of people, they begin to meet together to worship and to pray and to form this community of people that believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of their promises. However, when they do this, they begin to experience immediate backlash. They are disowned from their families. They're disassociated from their friends. They come under persecution from the Roman Empire. And because of all three of these things, they find themselves financially strapped and in a hard time. The first year that this is happening, it's not that big of a deal. They're filled with joy and excitement. They have found the promise fulfilled in Jesus. So the hardships, the tribulations, the persecution, it's a, it's a, it's a bit easy to deal with in their first year. However, one year turns into two. Two years turns into five. Five years turn into decades and they are waiting for the return of Jesus. But as the return of Jesus is delayed, they become a little bit disillusioned. Thinking maybe the way that we picked really isn't the way at all. And maybe Jesus, the one that we thought was the Messiah, maybe he's not the Messiah at all. And so they begin to have these flashbacks of their, their previous life as a Pharisee, as a Sadducee. As a zealot, as an Essene, they think maybe we should go back. Maybe we should go back to the former ways. Maybe we should go back to the former division that we came from. Maybe we should go back to the temple. You see, our guilty conscience is growing. Maybe we need to go back to the old sacrifices. But the author of Hebrews is going to say that would be the mistake of a lifetime. You've left all that behind you for something that is far better. And that thing that is far better is Jesus. And so if you go back, you are going back to something that is lesser, something that is redundant, and something that won't accomplish what you're looking for to accomplish. Only Jesus can do that. So the author of Hebrews keeps writing to these house churches, don't drift. Stay the course. Keep the faith 
run the race. Keep your eyes and your thoughts on Jesus because Jesus is better. He says it like this in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, since we have a confidence like we've never known before, to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body, let us draw near. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. For the author of Hebrews, Jesus is better than the old temple and Jesus is better than the old sacrifices. And so we want to talk about that for about 15 minutes this morning. But before we go on and begin to talk about how Jesus is better, we have to go to the Old Testament and look at the background of some of this. So if you have your Bibles or if you just want to follow along on the screen, we'll go to Exodus chapter 24. Uh, in this passage, Moses has just led the people of Israel out of Egypt. Uh, And and they come to the foot of this mountain in which the presence of God is dwelling at the top. And God calls Moses, a few of his close associates, and about 70 elders to ascend to the top. However, before they enter this most holy place, before they enter the presence of God, there there are some, some things that need to be taken care of. Namely, sacrifices and blood before they enter the holy place and eventually eat. So watch this. This is Exodus chapter 24, beginning in verse 11. It says, And Moses got up early the next morning, and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, these altars represent the entirety and the fullness of God's people. It says, Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord on these twelve altars. And there was blood from the sacrifices, and it says, Moses took half of the blood and he put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. He sprinkled it on the altar. Do you see this so far? There are sacrifices, and now there is blood. And it says, Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it to the people. And all of the people responded, We will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Anything is better than where we came from, and anybody is better than Pharaoh. We will follow Yahweh. And so the text continues. It says that Moses then took the blood, and remember this as we move forward. He sprinkled the blood on the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant. The covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. And it says then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel, they went up and they saw the God of Israel. What an amazing sight to behold. It says, under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli as bright blue as the sky. Then watch this. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. It says they saw God. They were in the presence of God and they ate and they drank. 
This is one of the first times that corporate Israel experiences the presence of God after their exodus out of Egypt. And so we see sacrifices, we see blood, we see them entering this holy place, entering the presence of God and this eating that happens, this drinking that happens. And as much as the people of Israel say, we will do everything we're commanded to do, we will obey as the story unfolds, it doesn't take a long time for the people of Israel to rebel, to harden their hearts and to move in a different direction. However, as the people rebel, they still want to enter the presence of God. They still want the benefits of meeting with the Lord in the most holy place with his presence. And so as a result, the people of God, these these sacrifices that were given at the base of the mountain and the blood that was used, they have to keep doing this over and over again. And so the Old Testament sets up these offerings and sacrifices that the people of Israel would use. Offerings like the guilt offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering. If you did it, there was a sacrifice for it. If you did it, there was an offering for it. Uh, Leviticus says it's important because of this. Leviticus 17 says, For the life of a creature, the life of a creature is in the blood. And I've given it to you to make atonement. Atonement is simply the idea of to make peace. To make reconciliation for two parties that were far apart. Atonement brings them back together. To make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And so the people of Israel, in order to enter the presence of God, they would have to bring a sacrifice, experience the blood of that sacrifice. Then they would enter the holy place. And when they'd enter the holy place with the priests, uh, later they would sit down with the priests and they would eat these grain offerings. They would eat these animal offerings they had given into the Lord. And so this becomes a picture of sacrifice, blood, the presence of God, and eating. But for these churches thousands of years later in the first century, uh, their thought is maybe Jesus isn't who we thought he was. Maybe this way isn't the way at all. Maybe we need to go back to the temple, back to the old sacrifices. Maybe we need to go back to doing this over and over and over again because our guilty conscience is growing and maybe it's not Jesus. But the author of Hebrews says that would be absolutely foolish. The sacrifice of Jesus is better than the sacrifice of bulls and goats. The body and the blood of Jesus is better than the body and the blood of bulls and goats. The presence of Jesus is better than the presence they experienced in the temple. Those things were good, but Jesus is better. And so this isn't the abolishment of the old way. This is the evolution of the old way into something that is greater. In fact, the author of Hebrews is going to keep that in mind. He tells the people that he's speaking to these house churches. He says, be sure about this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without sacrifice, there is no atonement. You'll keep your guilty conscience without the shedding of blood. But for the author of Hebrews, he he, he begins to support this idea that This is necessary, but Jesus was your sacrifice. 
And Jesus wasn't your sacrifice to be sacrificed over and over and over again. But Jesus was sacrificed once and for all of human history. And so he begins to make this redundant point in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. It says, and he sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself on the cross. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. But he entered the most holy place once and for all, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by his own blood thus obtaining eternal redemption for his people. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, but he has appeared. Jesus has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice, not of animals, but the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by one sacrifice, by one offering, Jesus has made perfect forever the people of God who are being made holy. The author's writing to these house churches in the first century saying, if you go back, you're going back into a system, into a pattern, and into a form in which you will have to give sacrifices over and over and over again. But these sacrifices won't do you any good. From this point forward, only the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross does anybody any good. And that sacrifice was once and for all. And so he continues in verse 19, Therefore, Because of this reality, brothers and sisters, since we now have confidence, since we now have full assuredness to enter the most holy place, deep, abiding confidence to enter the presence of God, not by the blood of animals, but by the blood of Jesus. He says, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain. Not the curtain in the temple, but the curtain of his body. Let us draw near. Let us come close to the presence of God. Let us come close to the goodness of God with a sincere heart. Not with a little bit of assurance not with a minority of assurance, not with a majority of assurance, with full assurance that faith brings. And in this image from that Exodus passage, having our hearts sprinkled with the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. In this passage, we see that form repeated, sacrifice, blood, Entering the holy place, and just like in the Old Testament, there was this idea that once you were in the holy place, this idea of eating and drinking in the presence of God. Paul knows this full well. He's, he's deeply Jewish, and when, when he's reflecting on the Lord, on Jesus giving his body, and giving his blood, and not just reflecting on it, being passed down a tradition, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. 
the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks for the bread, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, remember my blood poured out for you. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For as long as you gather to the holy place, because of the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus, eat together. Remember together. Come boldly together. You see, the kicker is this, that in ancient Israel, it it was kind of the idea that in order to cleanse your conscience, you you could meet God halfway. No matter what you did, you could bring an animal from your land or an animal that you bought in the marketplace, and you could meet God halfway by bringing him an offering to make atonement for your sin. In other words, to be at peace with God, to put everything in its right place. But what the author of Hebrews is saying is, there's nothing that you can bring. God brought a sacrifice for you. God gave Jesus on your behalf for himself. And so this idea of meeting God halfway, this 50-50 thing has completely been abolished and said Jesus has met us 100% of the way. There's absolutely nothing we can do to cleanse our conscience except by faith to receive the body and the blood of Jesus. There's no amount of coming to church that will help you meet God halfway. There's nothing about reading a ton of scripture to help you meet God halfway. There's nothing about extended times of prayer that will help you meet God halfway. God has already met you 100% of the way. And all of that stuff is simply a response to his grace. Church, worship. Prayer, reading, it's all a response to the fact that God has come 100% of the way towards us to cleanse our conscience. And so we see sacrifice and blood and entering into the holy place to eat, to take the bread and the cup. And so in closing, we read it one last time, therefore, Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that's been opened up for us, it's been opened up for us through the curtain that is the body of Jesus. And so because of this, let us draw near to God. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and with the full assurance, the full confidence, the full boldness that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. You see, whatever guilty conscience you bring in this room today, you can leave it at the table. 
whatever guilty conscience you bring in because of a fight that you've been having with your spouse, you can leave it at the table. Whatever guilty conscience you're bringing in because of the way that you've been treating your kids, you can leave it at the table. Whatever guilty conscience you have because you've been mistreating your parents for years and dishonoring them, you can leave it at the table. Regardless of any infidelity or any unfaithfulness in a relationship, you can come to the table and you can leave that guilty conscience, whatever hurt that you constantly carry with you. Whatever habit you can't seem to break, whatever hang-up that is constantly following you, today, this morning, you can leave it at the table because of the body and the blood of Jesus that was given for you. At no charge, completely free, all grace. And so this morning, they're, the communion team is going to pass out communion. And you, you'll, you'll take the bread and you, you'll hold the bread. And as you hold it, be mindful that, that that bread represents Christ's body broken. And when you receive the cup, you, you remember that this cup represents Christ's blood poured out. So that we can enter the holy place. So that we can remember God so that we can come into his presence and as you receive it hold on to it we're going to worship for a few moments and Colby's going to lead us through communion but this morning we remember that whatever we brought in whatever guilt whatever shame whatever condemnation whatever guilty conscience we bring in it may be from something that happened this morning or from something that happened 50 years ago, but you're still carrying it, this morning we can leave it at the table. We can have a clean conscience this morning because of the body and the blood of Jesus. This is amazing news. So let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to fill this moment. Holy Spirit, we pause. ask you to come and do what only you can do. That this morning, as we hold the bread and as we hold the cup, Holy Spirit, would you bring to remembrance, deep remembrance, Christ's body broken for us. Christ's blood poured out for us so that we may enter the presence of God with confidence having cleansed our guilty conscience. So Holy Spirit, help us to leave our guilty conscience at the table. Help us to leave our shame and our guilt and our condemnation at the table. Holy Spirit, empower us in these next few moments as we remember you. It's in your name that we pray. Let's worship together.